Morning, everybody. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. I appreciate you joining us, whether you're at one of our campuses or just watching online this morning. I'm really thankful that you're here. And as you can see uh, from your outline notes there, we are in the seventh and final week of Free Indeed. And for the last month and a half, we've been exploring the amazing freedoms that God gives us in and through our relationship with Christ. And we've talked about those freedoms. We've talked about using those freedoms. We've talked about receiving and living and resting in those freedoms. But today, to wrap things up, I kind of want to shift our focus just a little bit. I want to move from the what to the why. In other words, I want to move from looking at what freedoms we've been given in Christ to seeing why we've been given those freedoms in Christ. Why does God give us these amazing freedoms? Because He loves us? Yes. Because He's generous? Yes. That answers the question as to why God gives the freedom. But the deeper question is, why has he given them to you? What are the purposes of those freedoms in your life? Why are you free? The answer, to serve God. Notice what the Bible says there on the top of your outline, 1 Peter 2.16. Live as free people. In other words, live in these freedoms. Do not use them. Do not use your freedoms as an exercise to do evil, but live as what? What does that say? Live as servants of God. Use your freedoms to serve God, and you serve God best by serving and loving and helping others. But here's the catch. Serving God is risky. Loving others is risky. You cannot serve God or help others without going out on a limb, without making yourself vulnerable, without taking some chances, without risking your comfort and your security. Why is that true? Why does God make it that way? Well, I believe it's because God desires a relationship with him that is built on trust, not on transactions. Let me tell you what I mean. God does not desire this quid pro quo relationship with us. God does not want a relationship with us so that we do things for him, and in turn, he rewards us by doing things for us. Us. It's not a, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. God's back does not need scratching. And so God doesn't want this transactional relationship with us. He wants a relationship that is rooted in our complete and total trust in Him. Even when life and our circumstances don't make sense. 
That's why the Bible says it is impossible. It is impossible to please God without faith. And faith requires risk. And most of us are risk averse, right? Most of us are not comfortable taking risks. Most of us prefer to play it safe. To hold on to what we have, to to stick with the status quo. Even if the status quo is not great, at least we know what we've got and we know what what it's like. So we prefer to just kind of stay in our comfortable little lives. Now, a few of us love to take risks. Some of you, not many, but some of you here are risk takers. You're always out on the edge. You're always going for it just to see what happens. But I'm willing to bet that the majority of those risks are based on our own pride, not the depth of our trust in God. And so this morning, I want us to look at just some practical steps to taking godly risk. Not stupid risk for the sake of risk or for some sort of thrill or some sort of addiction that we're trying to feed in our own lives, but I'm talking about risk that we can take because of the depth of our trust in God. But before we look at these steps to taking risk of faith, I want us to take a moment and look at how our fears get in the way of that freedom. Our fears often keep us from using our freedoms to risk it all for the sake of God and his kingdom. And to help us do that, we're going to look at a group of people who were given an amazing gift of freedom by God. They had been held captive for 400 years And God miraculously shows up, gives them this wonderful gift of freedom. But as soon as they run into an obstacle, they are willing to cash in that freedom and return to slavery. I'm talking, of course, about the children of Israel. If you have a Bible or Bible app with you, turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. It's the story of God revealing himself to the nation of Israel and in doing so, freeing them. You've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, those of you that are really old. Those of you that are younger have seen probably the the prince of Egypt. So you kind of know the story, right? The Israelites have been held in Egypt under Pharaoh's power for centuries. God hears their cries for freedom and sends a rescue in and through a man named Moses, right? Moses shows up, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no way, Jose. And then God, not Moses, God begins to show his power. God shows his control over nature. Ten unbelievable plagues, unbelievable expressions of God's power over nature and ultimately God's power over life and death. And in doing so, Pharaoh finally resents and says, take your people and go. And Moses says, all right, people, I'm heading to the promised land. Who's coming with me? And about a million people walk out of Egypt. 
completely free. Within a few days of gaining their freedom, two things happen almost simultaneously. One, they run into the Red Sea. This large body of water that is impossible to cross. I mean, it's deep. How are you going to get a million people across this Red Sea without boats? And you can't go around it because there's mountains, huge mountain ranges on either side. And while they're trapped at the Red Sea, Pharaoh has a change of heart. I think Pharaoh changed his heart because the Egyptians started to complain because they had to start doing their own work. After a couple of days of cutting their own grass and washing their own dishes, they're like, this ain't good. And Pharaoh says, you know what? That's right. Gets the army together and begins to pursue these slaves that have now found freedom. So here they are, trapped at the Red Sea, mountains on either side, Pharaoh's army coming after them. No way out. You ever been in a situation like that? I call it the God's cul-de-sac, right? You're kind of trapped in the cul-de-sac and you can't get out. It's in those moments that I believe we are most in need of a faith that is willing to take some risk. But the nation of Israel, in their cul-de-sac, with the army bearing down on them, they don't respond with a risk-taking faith. They respond with fear. And you see that in some of the things that they say to Moses in this pressure-packed moment. And as we walk through the things they say to Moses, it is a great example of what fear does to us. What fear makes us, what it causes us to become and to do. Three things that fear makes us. You might want to write these down. Number one, fear makes us cynical. Fear makes us cynical. When we are afraid, we tend to respond negatively. We become sarcastic naysayers in our fear. Look at the first part of verse 11. They, this is the children of Israel, they say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? I mean, you can just hear the sarcasm and negativity dripping from their response. Now, think about this for a moment. These people had just in the last couple of months personally witnessed God's power. They had seen God's power. Not, they weren't reading it in some ancient book. They had lived it. They had seen God's power to give them freedom. You would think when they see Pharaoh's army coming at them, they would be like, oh, this is going to be good. These stupid Egyptians ain't learned a lesson about who God is, right? Get out the lawn chairs and let's just watch what God does. But that's not what they do. Their fear causes them to go negative. Why? Because fear causes us to lose sight of what is possible and become fixated on our current circumstances. Fear makes us cynical. Number two, fear makes us blame others. When we're afraid, we tend to run from responsibility. We pass the buck. We play 
the victim. Notice the second part of verse 11. They say, what have you done to us, Moses? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Now remember, Moses didn't make them leave. Nobody was holding a gun to their head. In fact, some of the Israelites stayed behind in Egypt. Not everybody walked out in freedom. Some had moved up in the slave world and maybe they had just a, they were in a good home and had easy work some had married Egyptians and they were like you know life is pretty good here I don't need to go traipsing across the desert for some supposed promised land and so the people who chose who left chose to leave my point is this we all have choices we make those choices But when it seems like those choices are bad, we love to blame others. Fear causes us to excuse ourselves from the commitments we've made. Fear causes us to to hold back a little bit. Fear keeps us from being all in in our lives. Maybe that's why fear is keeping you from really committing yourself to that job. You know, you're you're there at work, but you're not all in. You kind of got one hand on the door. You're always sending out resumes. You're always looking, you know, for something that might be better. Maybe fear is what's keeping you to truly committing to your marriage. Because if you were to really commit to your marriage for better or worse, then that may force you to look at the issues in your life and deal with what might be wrong with you. I believe fear often keeps us from committing to the churches that God has called us to. It's just easier to kind of play it safe. You know, if it goes good here at this church, then I'll be there. But, you know, if there's some problems, there's some issues, well, I'll just run to another church. Fear keeps us from being all in to the things and promises that God is calling us to. It's just easier to play it safe, to have options, to give yourself a way out. And then number three, the third thing fear does is it makes us short-sighted. Fear makes us short-sighted. Here's what I mean by that. Fear causes us to lose sight of what could be, what God could do. And we stay stuck in what is, even when what is, is bad. Look at verse 12. Again, they're still talking to Moses. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Really? I mean, talking about talk about looking at the past through rose-colored glasses. I mean, they're making it sound like, yeah, it was tough in Egypt, but it wasn't that bad. Let me tell you something. It was that bad and more. The level of abuse. The way that they were treated, beaten, starved to death, treated like dogs in the street. It was a horrible captivity. They were dying by the thousands every day in Egypt. And yet, 
fear caused them to choose to want to live in misery rather than trust God and take a risk for something better. Fear caused them to prefer slavery to uncertainty. And we do the exact same thing. As a pastor, I see this over and over and over again. Someone chooses to stay in an abusive relationship even when they're offered a safe way out. Somebody chooses to stay in a dead-end stressful job that's slowly killing them, but they just keep going every day. Someone chooses to stay in the bondage of addiction rather than ask for help and hope for something better. We're afraid of freedom because we are afraid to risk. So what are you enslaved by right now in your life? Because I think some of us are enslaved to our past. We are unwilling to risk it to truly believe that we can be forgiven and that we can be free. Some of us, myself included, often are enslaved to the opinions of others, to what other people think, to their expectations, to their plan for our lives. Some of us this morning are enslaved to habits and hurts and hang-ups. And even though freedom is available, we choose the comfort of our misery. You can only get to the promised land by going through the Red Sea. And you can only go through the Red Sea if you're willing to take a risk of faith. So how do we do this? How do we take a risk of faith? How do we trust God enough to risk it for freedom? Well, I believe the Bible lays out some clear steps for us. Four things we can do to take risk, godly risk, that demonstrate faith and trust in him. Four things. Number one, the first step, information. Information. You, you got to get the facts. Make sure you are as informed as possible. Notice what the Bible says, Proverbs 13, 16. It says, all who are prudent act with what? Act with knowledge, with information. Risk of faith are not blind leaps out into the great unknown. It is a thoughtful process of getting all the facts that you can and then filling the spaces between those facts with trust in God. That's what faith is. That's what it means to risk it. I read this week, 85% of all new businesses fail within the first five years. 85% fail within the first five years. And do you know why that is? For the majority of them, because those businesses were started with uneducated enthusiasm, uneducated passion. 
Someone has an idea or a product and they're like, I, you know, I, I got to start a business. I got to sell. I got to make this available. It's a great product and it probably is. But they just launch out without having the right information, without understanding the market, without understanding how businesses work and what is going to be needed in those early years. And they just launch out and it fails, not because it was a bad idea, but because a lack of information. Uneducated enthusiasm, which, by the way, I think the reason 50% of all marriages fail is because they are started with uneducated enthusiasm, right? We love each other. It doesn't matter. We love each other. And they rush in without getting the, without understanding the expectations of their spouse, without understanding the hard work it takes to be Married. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we at Cedar Creek Church, we require premarital counseling for all couples our pastors marry. Why? Because we want them to understand. We want them to have information. It's not about dampening the enthusiasm. Passion and enthusiasm by itself is not the problem. But that passion and enthusiasm has to be strengthened with wisdom with knowledge, with information, which, by the way, two great sources of information for risk of faith. One, the Bible, God's Word. I am amazed at how many of us are risking our lives and our eternity. We are risking our salvation on God in a relationship with Jesus and yet spend little to no time in His Word listening for his voice, learning his principles for our life. You know, a second great source of information in your faith journey, other people. Other people, who people who have maybe been there, done that, people that God brings into your life. They're a great source of information in your decision-making, in your risk-taking. Now, word of caution. Be careful of advice that comes from people who have a dog in the fight, right? Who have an agenda because their advice will be skewed by their own desires. And it's not because they're bad people. It's just because we're human beings. I'll give you an example. A year and a half ago, my daughter, Caitlin, my youngest daughter, was trying to decide whether she should serve God as an overseas missionary in South Asia or in Guatemala. And so she's coming to me for advice. Can you guess what my preference was? It's like a four-day process to get to South Asia and thousands of dollars. It's a couple of hundred bucks and five hours to get to Guatemala. So my desire was not really what God wanted for, but what Daddy wanted for her. And so I was not a good person to give advice because I had a dog in the fight. So just be careful. Not all advice that comes from other people, including wonderful, mature believers, is always great advice. But we got to have information. Then number two, the second step. Once you have the information, then you got to do the evaluation. The evaluation. In other words, use the facts that you have to evaluate the cost of this decision. 
the cost of taking a risk. It's what businessmen and women would call a cost-benefit analysis. What is this going to cost me, and is the benefit of taking this risk worth what it's going to cost me? Because here's the thing. Every risk has a cost. Every decision has a price tag. If not, it's not a choice. It's just the next obvious thing to do. It's just taking a walk down a clear path. But if you're taking a risk, if you're making a significant decision, it's going to cost you. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, don't begin until you count the cost. Great example of this from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the first missionary of the Christian church. Paul would travel town to town, village to village, city to city, preach the gospel, and plant churches. And almost every place he went, Paul ran into opposition. Sometimes it was from the Jewish leadership. Sometimes it was from the Roman occupiers. But he always ran into resistance. Sometimes Paul dug his heels in and pushed back against that resistance. But sometimes Paul snuck out in the middle of the night. Sometimes, one time Paul had to be lowered by his followers in a basket and a rope over the city wall to get away. Why the difference? Why sometimes stand and fight and why sometimes run away like a scared schoolgirl? Because Paul counted the cost. There were some risks that were worth taking. There were some that were not. I guess what I'm saying is not every opportunity for you to take a risk for Jesus means that you can or should do it. You need to count the cost. Then number three, the third step in taking risk of faith is preparation. Preparation. You got to plan your steps. You got to develop a strategy. Now see, I've met some people who believe that planning is unspiritual. They will say wonderful phrases like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just trusting on the Lord to show me what to do. And it sounds real good, but it's almost always phony. It's a spiritual excuse for not trusting God enough to launch out and risk failing or messing it up. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 15, the prudent give thought to their steps. Not having a plan is not faith. It's presumption. See, most failures in our faith journey are not because the risk was too big, but because the planning was too little. And do you know one of the best ways to plan is to anticipate problems. When you take a risk of faith, assume that it's not always going to go like you think it is. Assume that you are going to run into some issues and problems. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 27, 12, a sensible man watches for problems ahead and prepares to meet them. The problem with the Israelites wasn't that they trusted God to get them to the promised land. It's that they thought they could get there without having any 
obstacles. And because they weren't prepared for these obstacles, they panicked when they ran into them. Right? That's why they were running around scared. That's why they were freaking out. But not Moses. You notice that? Moses is not in a panic. He's just praying and saying, all right, God, whenever you're ready, show up and fix this. See, see, I don't think Moses was surprised that they were at the Red Sea between two mountains. I don't know if he knew Pharaoh was going to send his army, but he spent 40 years traveling in the wilderness. I'm pretty sure he knew the route, and he knew they were going to have to cross this Red Sea, and they couldn't do it on his own. He was expecting to run into this obstacle. And because he was expecting to run into this obstacle, he was expecting God to make a way. There is no freedom without faith. There is no faith without risk. And there are no risks without obstacles. That's why James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Don't be surprised by the painful trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Obstacles, pain, problems are all a part of our faith journey. You're going to run into the Red Sea. So what's your Red Sea? What's blocking the way to your freedom in Christ? When you run into an obstacle like that, you've only got two choices. Return back to bondage or step out in faith. And that brings us to the fourth step, initiation. Initiation. You got to take that first step. At some point, you got to pull the trigger. At some point, there's enough planning and enough praying At some point, your dreams have to turn into a to-do list. I love this next verse, Exodus 14, 15. Now God is speaking to Moses. says, then the Lord said to Moses, quit praying and get the people moving. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray or that prayer is not important. It just means at some point we've got to get up off our knees and start walking. It's super interesting to me that in order to get to the promised land, the children of Israel had to cross two bodies of water, the Red Sea leaving Egypt, but they also had to cross the Jordan River 40 years later to go into the promised land. And the way that God parts those bodies of water are very different. At the Red Sea, when they're panicked and afraid, God just parts it. They don't have to do anything, and God parts it, and they walk across on dry land. But 40 years later, they stand on the banks of the Jordan, and do you know when those waters parted? Not until they stepped into the water. I've thought about that all week, and I thought, why the difference? Why did God just do it before they stepped out? at the Red Sea, but why did he require them to step out in faith first before he parted the Jordan River? And I don't know for sure, but I was just thinking that maybe it's because they had had 40 years of experience in their relationship with God in the desert. He'd fed them, 
He'd given them cover from the sun. He brought water from around. They had had 40 years of experience of seeing God's faithfulness. So I think maybe at that point in the relationship, God was expecting a little more out of them. You know, I was thinking about that for our church. In the beginning, what God did in and through Cedar Creek Church in the early days, miraculous, no doubt. But it's not because we were doing all kinds of things. It's not because we were taking these huge risks of faith. We were just showing up, turning on lights, and people were coming from everywhere. We were just showing up, and God was moving, and His Spirit was poured out, and people's lives were changed. It was unbelievable. But let me tell you, Cedar Creek, we've got 25 years of seeing God's faithfulness in the desert. Maybe He's waiting on us to trust Him enough to take a risk. Maybe he's waiting on us to risk what we have in order to have something better. Maybe God, maybe God is waiting on us to risk the comfort of our cute religious life and go after hurting, broken, messed up people. And let me tell you, when they come, it is messy. It will not be comfortable. Maybe God is saying, step in the water, Cedar Creek, and see what I'll do. Step in the water. Trade in your fears for a deeper faith. A faith that makes it undeniable to our community and the world of who Jesus is and how worthy he is. See, maybe for some of us this morning, this is an individual issue. Maybe you've been dancing around your true faith in Jesus. You've been nibbling here and there at a relationship with him. Maybe it's been long enough. Maybe it's time to step across the line. Maybe it's time to say, I don't understand it, but it's all there is and I'm going all in with you, Jesus. Maybe for you, it's about hiding the brokenness in your life. And you don't let anybody in and you put on the facade, the marriage is great, your life is great, your job is great, and you cry yourself to sleep every night. And nobody knows it because you won't let anybody in. Maybe it's time to take a risk to step into the waters of connecting in authentic community and saying, I'm going to be a part of a home group. Maybe for you, it's time to get off the sidelines and into the game, serving at your campus, serving in your community. Maybe it's time to risk more than being on the fringes of the family of God and being a part of the family of God. I don't know what risky step of faith God is calling you to. I do know this, though. If you don't take it, you are allowing fear to keep you captive. You are allowing fear to keep you from the promised land. And you will never experience the freedom that God desires for you. You will never be free indeed unless you're willing to take a risk. Would you pray with me? Maybe you're here this morning and it is time to take that first step of faith. To just cry out to Jesus and say, I don't understand all this, but I'm asking you to come in, to forgive me, 
to cleanse me from my failures, past, present, and future, and begin to transform me with your love from the inside out. Maybe it's time for you to go public with that profession of faith. Later this month, we're, we're having baptism. That's the first great step of publicly professing your faith. Maybe it's time for you to do that. Maybe it's time to check that box on that tear off and take a risk and find freedom. Maybe for you it is time to, to truly be known and to know others. To do this life in authentic community. To get out of the bondage of the perception of what others think. And let people love you in the messy brokenness. Maybe for you it's about checking that box to, to get information, to get in a home group. Or maybe for you it is time to get off the sidelines. Maybe for you it's time to check that box about serving and to follow up, to get plugged in, to use your gift and talents for the kingdom of God. I know it's time for us collectively as a church to stop worrying about what we could lose and start dreaming of what God could do if we are willing to risk it all for the sake of the kingdom and the king. Father, help us trust you enough to step into the water and see you move. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.